0: Yeah, every Bob is going to grab those. You're going to need them. Nehemiah chapter one. We start a brand new book this morning and uh, it is a historical book. And so that'll be somewhat of a shift in our in our brains as far as how we've been going along the last year in the epistles and verse by verse through New Testament scripture. Now we're shifting back to a historical document. And uh, how did we get here while you're turning there and trying to figure out how to get there? I'll uh, tell you how we got here in scripture. It all began back in Genesis chapter 12, one through two. You might've read this this week in your, through the Bible. If you didn't pick up one of those, they're out there in the lobby for you. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. As God calls Abram, he calls Abraham, and that calling, that covenant that is made is then passed on to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We see Joseph as, as we read through Genesis. Joseph is there in Egypt, and it was by God's plan so that one day he would lead his nation out of the bonds of slavery. And so as they get on their path in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6 or 8, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your forefathers. God is a covenant-keeping God. He is creating for himself a people of his own possession. And so he now reiterates that, that I am keeping this oath that I swore to your forefathers. But as you go into the land that I promised you, there's not gonna, it's not gonna be without trouble. Deuteronomy chapter 4, 25 through 31. When your father, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed verse 27. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search with him, for after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Again, he's a covenant-keeping God, but it says when you get into the promised land and when you misdirect your worship towards carved images, as Romans would say, as, as we have given over to worship the created things rather than the creator, that judgment will come. And it did come. It came upon God's people in the form of a Babylonian army. As Jeremiah would say in 24 through 5, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. A few years back, we looked at Habakkuk. Habakkuk in a prayer, God answers in chapter one, five through six. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And sure enough, how did we get here? In 597 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, killing many people, destroying the Jewish temple, taking captive many thousands of Jews and leaving Jerusalem in ruins. This was all because of the sin of Israel. And after 70 years of exile in 537 BC, the Jews were allowed by King Cyrus of Persia to return to Israel and begin rebuilding the city and temple. As the superpower of the Babylonians then were taken over by the Persians, the Jewish people were allowed to return. And there were several different groups that departed Persia to return to Jerusalem to reestablish God's people and his land. One was led by Zerubbabel, another by Ezra, and another by Nehemiah. And so that's where we pick up. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem around 444 B.C., about 13 years after Ezra. And so this is kind of the biblical narrative of where we find ourselves throughout the history of the Old Testament. This book was originally one book, and Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, but now they've been separated based on authorship. I don't know if you've set through a study in the book of Nehemiah, and I can tell you um, it's not a book on leadership, although it might be used as a book on leadership, It's really not a book to be used for a building campaign, although it might get used for a building campaign. Uh, It's not really a character study of how to be a good Christian. If it were, then you'd have a lot of explaining to do in Nehemiah 13 when he beats people up, curses them and pulls their hairs out of of their heads. So it's not really a character study either. It's really the story of how God uses his people for his grand purpose of redeeming a people to himself that there's a kingdom work to be done and he chooses ordinary people like me and you to be about the work of his kingdom. Sin has caused God's people to ultimately misdirect their worship of God towards idols. And God is a righteous judge who punishes sin. But he's also a righteous payment through the son Jesus Christ for those who have sinned. What a beautiful gift Jesus Christ is. So, with that, let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. I think I gave you enough time to find it. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, I was, as I was in Susa, the citadel. The Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand." O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we get into your word, as we look at this historical narrative of your work amongst your people, I pray, God, that you awaken us to the work that you're doing amongst your people today that we would be a church that is a light to a world full of darkness. We'd be a people that you use for your kingdom work, that we would no longer be able to sit idly by, but we would have to be involved because you call us with a purpose and a plan. We thank you that you're a covenant keeping God, that you will not forsake us, you will not leave us, that you're faithful. God, we know that you are just and you are holy. So we bow before you today in humble submission and obedience in Christ's name. Amen. The kingdom work and a compassion for the kingdom. A kingdom work and a compassion for the kingdom. It all began. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. It begins like this because he begins to tell a story. He says, basically, well, sometime between the middle of November and the middle of December, I remember where I was. I was. I was in the capital of Persia, and it was 445 BC. I remember exactly where I was. You ever have those moments in life where you receive some news or some information, and you can look back and say, I remember exactly what I was doing when I received that phone call. I remember exactly what I was doing when that person had this conversation with me. Maybe, maybe for some of us who were over our 20s. Do you remember where you were when 9-11 happened? Yeah, I mean, we had been married shortly over a year and we were uh, trying to finish up college and my brother-in-law was living with us at the time, just a random season of life. And we got up that morning to convince ourselves to go to class so we could finish college and turn on the TV and it's like the whole day just didn't matter. You just sat down and just kind of took it in. You remember that? Okay, if you're younger, do you remember when you found out that all the restaurants were closed? (laughs) Not really the same, but really the only thing I had to go on. He was informed, A, and not ignorant of the kingdom need. He got this information. He knows exactly where he was at exactly that time. And it says that Hananiah, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah and asked, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. He receives the information and this information is alarming. The walls that King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed so many years earlier, remained in ruins. The gates had been burned. And though there had been many attempts to rebuild these walls, they just simply could not put together a foundation. Now the walls represented not only a separation between them and the world, God's people, the city of Jerusalem and the world, but it also being a city on the hill was, was structural. It was the foundational integrity of the city. And so if the walls are down, then, then these retaining walls would give way eventually. And so the people there are in ruin. They're in misery. They are worried about their situation and they desperately need help. The city Nehemiah hears about, he now is informed and he's no longer ignorant to the situation, but now he has information that he has to digest. He has to work through it. Now, a city is not just a, a bunch of buildings. What makes a city is a people. And so now he's worried about the people, not just the the construction of the city because the people, how are the people there? What happened to the people? The same is true today that the city on a hill is the people of God. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The city is the people of God, God's people that he had chosen, that he had made a covenant with, and they're in ruin. Lois Barrett says Key images of God's alternative community, the missional church, are found in the gospel's description of the people of God as the salt of the earth, a light of the world, a city set on a hill. These images suggest that mission is not just what the church does, it is what the church is. Saltiness is not an action, is the very character of salt. Similarly, light or a city on a hill need not do anything in order to be seen. So too, it is with God's people sent. The visible, tasteable nature of their community is their missional purpose. By encountering that holy nation, others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So, what if, what if the walls are broken? What if the city on the hill is in turmoil? What if sin and the consequences of sin have left the people of God without a foundation? Are you concerned? When you hear the news that the church is suffering, are you concerned? Are you concerned when you hear reports that the church's light is not as bright as it used to be in the community? Are you concerned when the foundations of that church are threatened by accepted sin? Are you concerned when the witness is destroyed and the enemy seems to have free reign to go in and out of the church to destroy it from within. He wasn't ignorant; he was informed. And B, his concern for the kingdom would turn into a compassion. I'm not sure who said it, but concerned people worry about the issue. Compassionate people act, give, and respond to change the issue. It's not like he heard the information and said, "Oh, that's that's too bad." You see, followers of Jesus must have a brokenness for the broken. The Bible's clear that the root of all problems is sin. It's sin. Why are there wars and terrorist attacks? Sin. Why are there famine and disease in the land? Sin. Why are governments not trustworthy and evil? Sin. Sin. Why is the Great Commission charged to the church not complete? Sin, disobedience, indifference. The concern is one thing, to be worried about it, compassion is another. Why are there problems in marriages? Sin. Why are you having a difficult time with your kids? Sin, why do you know of people who are broken by addiction and they seem to just not have it together? Sin, has your concern for them moved to a compassion? In many ways, the distinguishing lines or walls that are the separating effect of the church who God has called and the way the world operates have been blurred. We should have a compassion for those who are lost. Matthew 9, 35 through 38, you might recall this, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The compassion of Jesus didn't end with a concern. The compassion of Jesus was to then pray that there would be action that takes place, that there would be so many of his followers that were broken over the brokenness of the world that they would go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Nehemiah had this compassion, not just a concern, and see he was not insincere or indifferent to the kingdom need. Nehemiah didn't just hear the sad conditions of the city and say, man, I sure hope someone else steps up and does something. He began to pray. In 1964, there was a lady by the name of Kitty Genovese who was murdered in her apartment building in New York City. The story made national headlines because it appeared that none of her neighbors had responded despite all of her cries for help. Psychologists refer to this as the Genovese syndrome or the bystander effect. The larger the crowd, the more likely it is for individuals to think someone else will do something. Is that the case for the church? That we get lost in a crowd, that we say, man, I sure hope someone does something. And we respond with indifference. Wearsby says it this way, the worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. The church, oh, I... The church is full of love. But unfortunately, it's also full of indifference. We say we love people who are lost in sin, but then we respond with no action. That's indifference. If we love God, if we love his mission, if we love his kingdom, if we feel a deep concern and a compassion when the advance of the gospel is impeded, when sin is tormenting and plaguing the people of God and when the church is left vulnerable because sin has come in and wreaked havoc, we will act. But often we lack a compassion and a concern for the things of God because we're not consumed by the word of God. We often lack a compassion for the things of God because we're not consumed by the word of God. We're not in tune with the spirit of God. James Hamilton says this. If you care more about how your favorite college football team does on Saturday than you do about how the gospel is advancing, that's probably because your identity is more shaped by the time you've spent watching and talking about football than the time you've spent studying the Bible. Which do you know better, the roster, stats, and prospects of your team, or the contents of Scripture? Indifference. Stephen Cole says this, if you're born again, but do not feel burdened for the lost or for God's people, it probably means that you have become so caught up with seeking the things that the world seeks that you're not seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. You need to go before God and get, on, get your priorities in line with his priorities. He does not save us so that we can live happy lives pursuing the American dream. He saves us So that he can use us to further his purpose. A kingdom work and a cry of prayer for the kingdom. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I counted, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. And steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes opened to to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. A cry, a prayer for the kingdom. He receives the information, his concern moves to compassion and that he's not indifferent about it or insincere in his response, he actually takes it personal. He took it personal. These are my people. I'm one of God's people and these are my people. He wept. He was broken. Let me ask you, have you ever wept over the brokenness of other people's lives? Have you just come to a point where you heard information where someone's life's broken? Maybe they're broken because of addiction. Maybe they're broken because of a marriage. Maybe they're broken because of sin that has come into their life. Maybe you know people that are in your workplace that are ravished by sin who have no relationship with Jesus Christ, and you see how broken their life is and you just weep over it. Have you wept over the lostness of people lately? Have you wept over how complacent and consumeristic the church can be? Have you wept over sin in the church? Have you wept over the disunity that the body of Christ often portrays? Have you wept over gossip and slander that tears people down? Have you wept over the fact that students are graduating and not coming back to the the church? Concern has to move to compassion. I can't just be concerned about it and think about it. I have to be consumed by it so that I will have a compassion for it. And when we're consumed, we can't help but pray. He responded personally. Personally. He took it personal and he responded personal. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You notice how he starts his prayer? It's all about God. This acronym pray, P, praise. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you need to write it down. I don't know, praise. He begins with praise. Oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. As I began, how did we get here? He's a covenant-making God. Our repentance. You see it come in on the following verses. He begins to re- repent. Revival is always preceded by re- repentance. Ask. Ask. 1 John 5.14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We begin with praise, we move into repentance, then we begin to ask according to his will, and we yield to his will. The Lord's prayer is clear about who is in charge and who is not. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven And that's a prayer of action. Prayer is not about getting God on your page. It's about getting on his. Sometimes, however, we use prayer as an excuse for not acting in obedience, don't we? I'm gonna pray about that. I'm gonna buy myself some time. I'm not not ready to commit to that, so I'm gonna pray about it. Sometimes we use prayer as an antidote for guilt. I don't want to feel guilty, so I'm going to pray about it. Sometimes it's just a simple stall tactic in hopes that someone else will step up to the plate. So I don't have to do it. But our personal prayer prayer is a response to who God is, what he promises, and how we are completely dependent upon him to do it. So he took it personal, he responded personally, and he made it personal. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the, among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He goes personal. I'm not just praying for their sins. I'm guilty too. It's not just the sins of others that we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of our own sins and confess them. If we're broken over the brokenness of the world, then we should be broken over the sin that's in our life first. But are we more inclined to judge ourselves based on others than we are based on God's word? I mean, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, did you see so-and-so? In fact, the sins we see in others should be a mirror for us to evaluate ourselves. We may be quick to see the imperfections in others, but... We need to use that as an opportunity to look in the mirror at our own imperfections. As the students read in Matthew chapter 7 this week, verses 2 through 5, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why you Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite first take out take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye before revival will come to a church before revival will come to a city before revival will come to a people revival must first come to our hearts as G. Campbell Morgan says, we cannot organize revival, but we can set ourselves to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. Second Chronicles seven fourteen if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Are you broken over the brokenness in the world? Are you broken over the brokenness in people's lives that are all around you? But really, are you broken over the sin that's in your own life? Revival will never come until we are a humble people. I would love for the winds of God to blow through this church body. But what if our cells aren't up? What if we're not repentant? What if we just sit idly by hoping someone else will do something? It's time to take our concern to a different level of compassion. It's time to be broken over the brokenness of this world and it's time to be broken over the brokenness in our own lives. If you're here today and you've got sin in your life, man, I pray that God's spirit convicts you and you are broken today and you cannot leave without falling on your knees before him. He is a faithful God. He is faithful and he is good. And he is a God who keeps his word that if we will humble ourselves and we will pray, we will receive him. Today, don't leave Indifferent, leave changed.